This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree, rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. This is Forbes Under 30 on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Goldblum. On the Forbes Under 30, we talk to young innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm speaking with Anna Therese Day via Skype. She's safe in New York right now, but Anna is often in the Middle East in high-risk zones, reporting on some of the bloodiest moments in our world's recent history. She's also a founding member of Frontline Freelance Register, an organization made to create community for conflict journalists who take physical risks in their line of work. First of all, thank you for doing this. We'll just jump right in. Thank you for having me, Steve. Can you set set this up for us in terms of where you grew up and uh, what brought you to the Middle East in the first place? Of course. Uh, well, I am a native of Boise, Idaho, and I spent my childhood there before um, spending my high school and college in the Midwest. Uh, and really, the reason I ended up... Um, Heading to the Middle East is, I think, just a result of my age. Uh, I came up to a political awakening um, in the wake of 9-11, like a lot of people my age. And the Middle East, Muslim countries, Arab countries, or the countries and uh, places that the U.S. was most uh, heavily investing in in terms of foreign policy and war. So, so that's why I ended up there and not somewhere else. And I haven't looked back since. And so you were studying abroad, though, is that right? In your yes, in your... I got some good advice in in actually high school when I was interested in being a journalist. Uh, they said, you know, study a language, study a region, pick what you want to do. And I, I knew pretty clearly I was very interested in the Middle East because of the. Uh, war in Iraq. And then in college, I had great professors who said, get there as soon as possible. I started studying Arabic and doing, you know, study abroad courses and found myself studying in three Arab countries. And then when I graduated from University of Wisconsin, I uh, got a fellowship to study in Israel. And uh, I was doing my master's courses there when the Arab Spring erupted. Now, that's right. When the Arab Spring erupted, you were, that was your version of winter break. Isn't that right? Yes. <laughs> yes. And since I'd previously studied in Egypt, I had a lot of friends, and I was quite activist when I was in college. So even when I was studying abroad or learning Arabic, the young people that I was rolling with were all uh, organizers in their countries. Um, and what was so, I think, thrilling for me was watching these young people lobbying for the same rights that we hold dear in America, the right to vote, which most of them had been denied their whole lives living under dictatorships that my country supported. So when they called me when I was up in Israel and said, the revolution's coming to Egypt, uh, I thought, well, you know, if nothing happens, whatever, but if I don't get on this flight and the revolution does happen, I'll never forgive myself. What's interesting, you know, I remember I was covering uh, news in 2007 for PBS. Uh, really, I was at a very, very low level, but it was a big peace conference that they had in Annapolis back. It was like just at the end of the Bush years. I mean, it's a very insular crew of reporters that covers this in the West. And I remember somebody calling themselves an activist, and some diplomat said, "Well, you an activist, an activist, or are you an activist journalist?" And you described yourself as an activist. So, can you talk about that transition from activism to journalism? Well, just in my personal life and. Uh, my interests, I've always been actively involved in, in social justice 
race issues. And I do see that my that as my role um, as an American in the Middle East. Um, I report for U.S. news outlets, um, and our country plays some pretty controversial roles uh, in ultimately every country in, in the region. So um, I do see my role as activist uh, essentially because um, our government's role is uh, so, uh, I think, blatantly corrupt. Uh, and, that, and I see that overlap with journalism. Our job is to make sure our audience has, understand what's being done in their names. And, and I get to be on the ground on the front lines of what U.S. foreign policy really looks like. Well, can you now describe for us, you know, that you, you went when you went to Cairo, you went as a student studying Arabic to being a war reporter. And that that transition happened fairly quickly. So can you describe for us what what did that transition feel like? Did you feel like you had the tools to make that switch? You know, that that transition happened uh, virtually overnight on January 25th, 2011. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was down there and a lot of my friends from college were working as journalists for U.S. outlets and, and they knew I went down and people were interested, particularly young people in the United States, that these young people around the region were rising up. I was there for the initial moments where the protesters broke through the police line into Tahrir Square and I was taking pictures, talking to people. I, I was, you know, it was the time of my life, really. The first few days of those uh, protests were probably and maybe the most beautiful thing I might ever see in my life. Uh, so I posted those photos to Facebook and I put my phone number up there. And uh, in a matter of hours, I had news organizations calling my Egyptian burner cell phone and asking me for a frontline perspective of what was going on on the streets of Cairo. Did you feel some exclusivity to the coverage you were providing at that point? I mean, did you feel like you were part of the limited few that were really there on the ground? I didn't at first. Um, I saw a lot of journalists in the streets and you know, I felt like it was the most incredible thing happening on, happening on the planet in that moment. But I did realize quite quickly over the following months that the way the U.S. international news coverage is set up, they've really scaled back over the past decade. So, in fact, um, a lot of news agencies weren't well equipped to cover an event like this. You know, many had closed down their bureaus in Cairo and other areas of the region. So it was actually a huge opportunity for me when, you know, when I realized CNN was in a hotel room saying, we've heard that the tear gas canisters say made in America. We can't confirm that. And while the rest of us young freelancers are in the street, you know, kicking through tear gas right. canisters and we can confirm that. You can that. confirm. So, yeah. So, so we realized pretty quickly that I think we had this advantage in, in the fact that we were telling the stories of our peers. Many of them were using new technologies that we were quite um, fluent with to get their message out. And all of a sudden, those politicians and high profile figures that I would have never picked up a phone call to me weren't really the story. So so that was a huge opportunity for young people and, and something I, I tell young journalists to this day when they ask, you know, how to get started, I say, you know, I was pretty lucky. What, what does it feel like to you when, as someone that lives and works abroad that when you see statements made in the West that become hyper-politicized, like, I, I remember you talking about this, but Bernie Sanders would say, 
Uh, there's a disproportionate amount of tax attacks from the Israeli government on Gaza. And, and people make that into a political statement where you were to say, well, that's actually true, where fact can be turned into the political. That is what is, is very frustrating being based in the field, seeing how misperceptions about the region make some facts irrelevant. And, you know, we, we see this, unfortunately, with Israel and Palestine all the time, we really don't have a very fact-based discourse on, on that conflict in the U.S., but sadly it's the same for most of the, the countries that the U.S. supports in the Middle East, whether it be Saudi Arabia or countries that are you know, far worse than Israel. So, so we've seen that sadly firsthand, and I, I think that's one of the biggest disconnects for me is so many people asking, even progressives saying, you know, well, where are the moderates? You know, the, the vast majority of people are families and moderates. And I really wish the question people were asking were, is, is does the U.S. government support these moderates? Too often that answer is no. I remember speaking with uh, war photographer Lindsay Adario. And, um, wow. <laughs> about, the queen. <laughs> yeah, now, is she someone that you, you really admire or look up to? Oh, absolutely. I was asking her you know, was it the adrenaline that attracted her to high conflict zones? And she said it really wasn't. It was that she couldn't do anything else. You know, she was compelled to do it. And I wonder if the same is true of you when you go to these high-risk regions. And do you feel compelled to cover those stories? Like, there's no other place you want to be? Well, the Middle East has become my home. In many ways, it feels like my home more than the U.S. as I've spent more of my adult life uh, in in Arab countries than I have in the United States. So I feel really connected to the fate of my friends, people who become family to me in these countries. So so it feels really, really personal for me at this point. So it's hard to, you know, come back to the United States and, you know, for over, it seems like two years we've been talking about the election nonstop and then it kind of continues with the unexpected results of the election. But for me, the last, you know, five years of my life have been Syria and uh, so it's it's difficult and there's a disconnect because I think that's something that should be covered all the time. It is a privilege, honor, and the greatest challenge probably of my life to, to cover that story. And is there an adrenaline element? Definitely, it's really high stakes work, but I, I don't think I'd be doing it at this point, particularly since we've lost so many of our colleagues, if I wasn't totally you know, committed to this particular region. What is the impact like on your family and, and your friends? Well, you know, I couldn't be more grateful to my family for supporting this. And I do feel that I'm pretty lucky to come from a family that's very activist in their own ways on their different issues. So when I tell them about the people that have become my family in the Middle East, you know, we Skype with them. I had a Syrian rebel call me on Christmas, just escaped from Aleppo, you know, and I tell them these stories and they're very touched and moved to see people around the world, again, fighting for our values against higher stakes than we could ever imagine in the U.S. So I think I'm really lucky to have family that support this. But of course, it's been really challenging, particularly this past year, you know, our, our team was was arrested. And that kind of made me rethink everything. I have been in a lot of intense scenarios. I do a lot of risk and preparation for that. And I feel like I'm prepared to do that kind of work, but even being detained for a couple of days and, and seeing my family after that, it does make you rethink 
you know, what you're putting people who love you through for your work. I want to pick up on what you just said, which is that this time last year, you and your crew were detained in Bahrain and charged with illegally assembling with the intent to commit a crime. And how did that come about? You were sentenced up to two years at, at first. Yes, uh, it was really scary and chaotic. Uh, the thing is, uh, we did know that we would be arrested. I think that's the, maybe the craziest part of the story when I repeat it to people because people think, what? But the reason we were reporting Bahrain is because it's home to America's fifth fleet, which is one of our most imperative military installations in the whole world. So all of the refueling and a lot of planning for all the counterterrorism operations in the region comes from that base. But what most people don't know, because you know, many people have never heard of the little country of Bahrain, is that there's really grotesque uh, human rights violations that have been happening there. So we were going there because it was the five-year anniversary of their pretty um, incredible uprising that was squashed, and it was squashed by America's allies, Saudi Arabia, and it was you know, really silenced. And there was a crackdown just miles from U.S. servicemen and women serving at this base. So we did understand that we were entering a dangerous place. We were going to be reporting on people who are, you know, hunted by their government, you know, human rights defenders and different groups who certainly shouldn't be in, in prison or under attack. But there is no press freedom there. We went in undercover. We anticipated being kind of arrested and deported after a few days. And that's kind of been the routine with foreign journalists going into that country to get that story. But what turned very different for us is that our case kind of switched gears quite quickly after we didn't hand over our sources to the security forces. Um, So that's when our charges went from, you know, entering as a tourist instead of on a journalist visa, which they do not issue, to charges of unlawful protest, rioting, and they even accused us of terrorism. So those are a two-year to 10-year prison sentence, and that was incredibly terrifying in, in the moment. Adding to that, you had no legal representation. No one in the Western world knew where you were. How did you get out of that situation? Well, I have to hand it to my colleagues in in the press. Truly, it was the networks that I've, you know, uh, made as as a freelance journalist. We really stick together because we we've been through so much in the past five years working in in hostile environments that we have a very strong community. And it was that community that was activated with my family and then really to the credit of all the news organizations that I've worked with, which is everyone over the years. (laughs) So um, everyone just came out and made a lot of noise about it. And very quickly, once when we got out, we, we saw the timeline and there really wasn't much progress on our case. And then we found out when the media broke the news of us. And quite quickly after that, when, you know, my name was on the CNN ticker, did we finally get access to the the U.S. Embassy? We finally got access to a lawyer for, for a minute, and the, the tide really changed. So so I just have to thank the media and our, our friends and allies in that space and you know press freedom groups that really came out for our team. Well, this will this will lead us into you know work that you're part of now. But I mean, the, the the risks that you absorb as a freelancer in terms of insurance and the kind of protection that you receive, you, you describe that as a threat from within, right? And and the thring, the shrinking resources for journalists and freelancers. So, can you talk about that? So, yeah, sadly, there's there's never been a more dangerous time to be a journalist. We have 
the threats of designated terrorist organizations, whether that be ISIS or Boko Haram. We also face the threat of increasingly authoritarian regimes and governments around the world. But then we face this final threat, this threat that, that my colleague Emma Beals calls uh, the threat threat from within. And that was a kind of principle that we started tackling after our colleagues were kidnapped in Syria. What many people don't know about the American hostages in Syria is that they had been actually kidnapped for, for quite some time before, you know, we ever saw those those terrible videos that were released. And in and in that time we saw that news agencies across the board were not providing the same labor protections that they had previously provided to staffers for, you know, over a century. So so that's why we started this group called Frontline Freelance Register, and now it's the only and largest representative body for freelance conflict journalists. And we're actually working through the State Department with our press freedom allies and uh, the, our industry, you know, media outlets and clients to kind of reform these standards, uh, these well, lack of standards and safety to prevent um, any other family from dealing with the, you know, tremendous loss that our community experienced uh, with the ISIS executions. And, and can you clarify that for us? You're referring to James Foley, right? The, the, the journalist? Yes, yes. And Stephen Sotloff and our other colleagues who are aid workers. And, and yeah, it was just, you know, uh, unbelievable. And I think there's, for a while, there was kind of this myth of this, like, reckless young freelance journalist, because, you know, as I described at the beginning of the interview, we we were having the time of our lives in the Arab Spring. But I think what's different is we really are the first generation of freelance journalists to organize ourselves. So it's not recklessness. We really understand the stakes, and we're trying to look systemically about what's happening when we have a, a news industry that's shrinking and you know, has fewer resources and really can't keep the foreign bureaus that they once had. So, so we're trying to close some of those gaps so that we know that we will see fewer cases at least, or at least eliminate one of those three threats, that threat from within, from within our industry. Well, we speak of those cases, some of those horrendous videos that seem to take over the zeitgeist of our, you know, political culture in the summer of 2015, where the videos of journalists who were beheaded and, and sent to their families and and that was our association with ISIS, it seemed like, in the media in that summer of 2015. But I was re- going through your work and reading something that you put up in 2013, and you said in one of your pieces, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and you said in brackets, ISIS. And I remember thinking in 2013, that was pretty early. We weren't talking about ISIS every night on the news back in 2013. And you spent an evening with four members of ISIS. Is that right? Yes. Um this has been the, you know, obviously most disturbing story that I've covered within the Syrian context. But when I started reporting on Syria, I, I did start reporting with the Free Syrian Army, these moderate rebels that everyone questions their existence. But truly, I was reporting at a time where there were still doctors and lawyers and nonviolent protesters in Syria. But we saw very quickly that that they were being bombed by their own government. So many of this kind of moderate middle class flood the country and they are the refugees that we now see in Europe and scattered around the world. 
But within that vacuum of really desperation, despair, war crimes that, you know, innumerable war crimes, more radical groups started coming in. And that's really been the, the greatest tragedy, uh, tragedy of, of the Syrian civil war, that almost the sideshow, which is ISIS and the horror that they have unleashed very publicly and very in a very media savvy way has almost eclipsed the, the main event, which has been Assad's cracked out on his people for nearly six years. Yeah, so I, I met these young fighters. It was very easy to work with them. At the time, they weren't the Islamic State that we know today. They didn't have a lot of power. And many of them spoke English. So they'd been educated in the West, which was pretty crazy. So we had very common references. I actually very much understood some of their criticism, their legitimate criticism about the U.S. role in the region. They were very well versed in our history of, you know, human rights violations. And really the departure in our, our criticism of the U.S. was, of course, their solution. And it was establishing an Islamic caliphate across, across Syria and Iraq. And they had that vision back in 2013. So it's been stunning to watch them realize that. And then, of course, it's been incredibly disturbing seeing how power really does corrupt, and it corrupts young people that didn't scare me at the time, that I could find common ground with, that now I I truly feel have been totally brainwashed. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. A lot of businesses, too many, think of payments as a mechanical function. It just needs to work. But your payment solution can be an engine for growth. It can help up your conversion rates. It can help tap you into market growth. It can help allay security concerns that are limiting your customers' spending. And payments can be a way to provide new experiences to you customers. You want to grow your business? Rethink your payments. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. And it's coming to Podcast One in just a few weeks. So keep your eyes and ears open for Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the time, uh, in, in your writing, you, you do describe it as that, that you, you all share so much in common. You're Western-educated 20-somethings who speak fluent English. But you also say they were trying to convince you of the righteousness of their causes, and they talk about martyrdom and suicide. So how did they make that argument to you? Well, that's one thing that we, we don't talk about, the legality of armed resistance in the U.S. And actually, people around the world have the right to defend themselves under international law from occupation or violence against their government. What's a violation of international law is violence targeted at civilians. So what the rebels were doing 
the moderate rebels, the Free Syrian Army, is is armed resistance. When they targeted civilians, that that is terrorism. That's when they you know cross the lines under international law. What ISIS did was uh, never make that distinction, nor did they try. They were the first. Um, they were you know connected to some of the first groups that started blowing up civilian targets in in Damascus and Aleppo, and really just departing from more moderate and at the time the majority of the opposition. They wouldn't make that distinction between civilian and combatant. And it was a very, you know, there was just a level of ethnic chauvinism that, you know, it didn't matter if you were a little girl, if you were of that race or a religious sect, you were not one of them. That was the main, you know, departure, these these tactics. And then, of course, their very radical vision for the world. You talk about gaining the trust of Mohammed. Are you still in touch with, with him, with any of them? I am in touch with a number of uh, the young men that I met in that period. You know, the conversations have changed so much since we first met, and it, it remains difficult to stay in touch, particularly given the airstrikes that have been, you know, effectively pushing back ISIS. So at this point, it's usually a contact me when you can, and we've set up, you know, our secure channels to do that. But these are not the young men that I met in 2012 and 2013. How have they changed? I probably sound too sympathetic, and, and I'm, I'm not. You know, ISIS has wreaked havoc over a population that was already so incredibly vulnerable from the abuses of the Assad regime. So it's so frustrating to see, you know, people seizing on the weak. And that's certainly what's happened in Raqqa. You know, I know Syrians who are living there undercover and they say, you know, this isn't this isn't the Islamic State. This is the occupation. This is a foreign occupation of radical Muslims from all over the world. I, I met a Syrian last month who said everybody knows that ISIS is the world's garbage that they've thrown into Syria, they've thrown into Syria and Iraq. You know, it's quite true. There's a lot of foreign fighters there. Um, this isn't uh, organic Syrian movement. Um, so, so that's been what's so frustrating that these are foreigners that have, in many ways, hijacked parts of what started as a very legitimate resistance. They've, you know, kind of tarnished the message and uh, tarnished the movements, and that just just wreaked havoc. Um, but, but to your point about these young men, what I, I guess the reason I still am sometimes a bit sympathetic is, is watching them get isolated from their families, watching them get isolated from their loved ones. You know, this isolation, and we talk, we talk about echo chambers in the U.S., but, um, you know, a very extreme version of that. And I think that I see that as a very predatory mechanism that powerful, sophisticated, radical leaders who never, you know, sacrifice or martyr themselves, but are happy to let every young man mm-hmm. die died of the last, uh, the last, you know, one of them. So that's what I found most manipulative about about this is that kind of isolation. And, and it, it just seems very predatory what happened to these kind of very angry, but also uh, kind of impressionable young men. What type of brainwashing did you hear about? You know, some of the most accurate um, comparisons that I've seen when people analyze ISIS is to that of pedophiles particularly like this um, kind of predatory recruitment behavior online. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I saw, like people that were more powerful than the young men that they were recruiting, asking these young men to take risks that they never took themselves. And, and that's why I do feel it's, uh, you know, these, a lot of these young men are not children. They're in their 20s. They, I'm sure they can 
You know, I don't want to infantilize them or make excuses, but but the kinds of you know men that we saw were people very isolated. Some had experienced like terrible Islamophobia in Western countries. Others had lost loved ones to drone strikes and really seen the worst part of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. So again, these were people in a lot of pain, a lot of anger. And living in a region where there is no legal recourse or institutions to ever get justice for your families, even if your cause is incredibly legitimate. So so that's what um, is, is so frustrating that I can understand their initial frustration, but it's almost like they fell into the into a gang. That's that's what I see that as ISIS just um, thugs that mm-hmm. really preyed upon um desperate situations and uh, were very, very manipulative um, in terms of isolating people, in terms of, you know, getting them to do things that they would have never done and then not being able to turn back. Uh, So that's, I think, the best comparison, either the recruitment to pedophiles or the kind of gang mentality and initiation that we see in gangs all over the world. But Anna, is it difficult for you after embedding yourself into these high conflict zones and emotional places abroad to just come back and recover a local story in New York or even just hang out with your family and friends? <laughs> How do you toggle uh, between the two? At different points, it's been really challenging, but I think, you know, I've actually had a really tight group of support within this community, Frontline Freelance Register. Um, I think we all collectively went through this trauma together and I'm just on you know I had endless Skype calls for months a year later on the anniversary of certain things and and it really was it was torture to have these timelines of when they were going to execute colleagues and quite frankly a lot of journalists had ISIS contacts and up into the final weeks you had people who didn't think they were going to do that so uh, so it, it felt like a betrayal because a lot of people were working so hard you know to on behalf of their colleagues, that was such a, I mean, a slap in the face is the biggest understatement we could, you know, to describe mm-hmm. that. So it was a, a collective trauma for our community. Um, I can't imagine what the families have gone through. Um, and, you know, some of one of our colleagues, um, he's not uh, detained by ISIS, but we do have a colleague, Austin Tice, who's been in captivity in Syria now for years. Um, he's held by regime militias, most likely. But um, so we see this kind of um, trauma, I guess it hasn't really ended. Um, right now in most of the Arab countries, most of my peer reporters who happen to be of Arab descent are in prison or have experienced torture. You know, it's just really a dangerous time to be reporting in the Middle East. And we've seen young people and idealistic people and, you know, people who were fighting like hell five years ago, be silenced and kind of pushed into submiss- submitting to fear. And to see that after seeing the, you know, what everybody fought for five years or six years ago now, it's been pretty dramatic watching that. But at the same time, I, I do think within that kind of collective trauma I do have a lot of people who've, who've gone through the same thing and we're all there for each other. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a tight-knit tribe. Well, let's talk more about the Frontline Freelance Register and walk us through exactly how it serves high-risk journalists. How do people get involved with it and uh, just give us different scenarios? Well, I think a lot of people don't know uh, that – International news is often not ethically produced. 
uh, one of my colleagues wants to start a campaign like where do you get your where did you get your news kind of like where do you get your organic food or whatever you know <laughs> so, is Facebook like the safe way of that answer well well it's um, it's just kind of a challenge because uh, the industry has changed so much and I don't you know spend too much time you know being nostalgic about the good old days of news because you know, the good old days of news was never that great. The legacy media was never that great to women, minorities, um, and it was uh, pretty it rarely included the voices of local journalists in these countries. So, so we're not nostalgic for that period. New media has allowed so many more voices um, into the conversation, so many more people allowed to speak for themselves. So I'm ultimately like happy to be alive and working right now, but we haven't figured out the revenue structure. And, you know, it, it used to be advertising. And now with the Internet, that's kind of gone out the window. So people are still kind of news agencies are still kind of figuring it out. And while they've done that, they've, you know, been trying to cut costs wherever they have. And, and they've most American news outlets, because there's not as much of an appetite for international news in the U.S., have made those cuts to their international bureaus. So we're in many ways, we, we never thought of ourselves like this at the time, but our, our group of young freelancers were kind of the scabs that allowed major media organizations to fire some of the best veteran reporters in the game. We were lucky that they came straight to the field and mentored us and you know, made it very clear to us that we were working in very dangerous situations and helped us and you know, fought for us whenever anyone got into trouble. So so that was kind of the beginning of Frontline Freelance Register, realizing this disconnect and realizing that it's it's very dangerous if you're if companies are not paying on time, if, if they're not providing insurance, uh, sadly, in our business, we need kidnap and ransom insurance, all of these things that um, staffers have had for for again, decades, they're not currently extended to uh, freelancers on a regular basis. So so that's something that Frontline Freelance Register is fighting for, really, these kind of systemic changes that will allow our colleagues who, who understand, you know, they're in this game, they understand the risks of war reporting, but at least mitigating the risks that we can prevent. You've described this as the lack of institutions exacerbates abuse towards women and minorities. So what do you mean by that? And how has your experience as a woman reporting abroad in high conflict zones been informed by that? Well, I, I said that because what's very interesting is like we have those perceptions in the United States about Arab men in particular and that they're incredibly sexist to their women and, and it's, you know, look how they treat their women. We were liberating Afghanistan from these, you know, Muslim practices, et cetera. And what I found in living there is, you know, of course, the challenges for women and minority groups in the Middle East are, are far greater. But what I realize is the sexism that I sometimes experience there is quite similar to the sexism I experience in the United States. The difference is we have institutions and laws and, and it's built on the back of civil rights movements that fought for these things that there are actually repercussions in the United States in, in some cases when the rights of minorities or women are violated. So in the Middle East, um, it's a region where almost all institutions are um, dysfunctional. So um, so when you see this lack of institutions, that's why I always say that the Middle East isn't more racist or sexist. Uh, it, it just has no institutions that really protect uh, women and minorities. And that, that's really, really dangerous. And of course, the stakes are higher as a result. But sadly, I do see the same uh, attitudes 
uh, among men in the U.S., uh, sadly. What would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions that Americans have about some of the regions that you've covered abroad? Well, I said this before, but really I'm asked so often, where are the moderates? I find that question, even though it's always asked in good faith, or most of the time it's asked in very good faith, uh, to be really disparaging to the vast majority of people I know in the Middle East, um, particularly the moderates who are fighting daily against all of these, you know, for all of these rights that we take it uh, for granted in the U.S. And so often they're fighting against the very governments that the U.S. supports. So, um, so that's what I would, I would like to share, I guess, when there's, you know, very intense climate of Islamophobia in the U.S. right now and um, of fear of the other. And um, it, it's just crazy to me because <laughs> it just shows very little uh, willingness for us to take responsibility when it's in fact our policies that put young journalists um, that are just like me except Arab in, in prison in many of the countries we support. So so that's the part of my job that I feel there's the most dissonance on this disconnect about our perception about the Middle East and that we usually play a productive role. I, I would say generally we've played a pretty damaging role for those moderates. Well, I'm curious, the business model for a freelancer, and if you could walk us through how you decide on stories, are you pitching stories to editors? Um, what does the process look like? And is it different for, 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 for different freelancers when, when you're traveling? Or do you go out with sort of a mission from a paper before you start your travel? The, the process of being a freelancer has evolved quite a bit for me over the years. When I started out, um, I was working like crazy all of the time. I would say for five years straight before I took even a couple of days of vacation. And that was really just getting my foot in the door and working for anybody and everybody. And, you know, thrilled, of course, by the stories that I was doing and, and felt really the urgency of the times. Um, now I have a little bit um, more, I have the opportunity now to be a little bit more picky with the stories. And right now there are very few you know, stories in the Middle East that I'm not interested in covering. But I would say my hesitation now and being more selective is about, about safety and how will this story add to the discourse on a certain issue. And if it's not adding to the discourse, then it's not worth the risk for me. Um, so that's kind of my personal calculation now about accepting assignments and then, of course, pitching my own. And do you ever feel the pressure that your narrative fits the narrative that they have in mind for the story that you're actually covering? I do feel that quite often. I think I felt it much more when I was a little bit younger and starting out. And, and that's something I'm most worried about with with younger journalists, because I certainly didn't feel like I could stand up for my for for my rights, for my sources, for myself, as well as now I know I could have. Yeah. And I was really lucky. I'll just give an example. One of my first print stories ever was for a major publication that violated, you know, what if I if I had known at the time it would be violating New York state law, like they really cut corners on labor standards, exploited me in every way you can imagine. And then right when we were going to print, they they wanted to name one of my sources in the article and it was incredibly sensitive. They'd already fact checked with him so and you know, had been able to triangulate that. There was there was no question that the story is valid and it was an issue of safety for this source. Mm -hmm. And 
ultimately they they tried to kind of threaten me to release his name and I thankfully was in a hotel full of veteran journalists who were like give us your copy and we'll send it to another publication this is outrageous and I was so lucky to be in in a room full of journalists ready to open up their Rolodexes to a young journalist being exploited um, and and yeah I stood firm and was able to and they backed down and, you know, I, that was a good example of, of having the kind of solidarity mentorship that a young journalist needed mm. in those moments. But sadly, there have been other situations where, where I didn't have that support or didn't know that I could fight for these things against these big companies. Do you want to tell us who that media organization was? <laughs> I, I'm sure a Frontline Freelance Register will be naming and shaming them sometimes soon. Go. My story will be one of many, okay. <laughs> many people's stories. There, it's true, though, that leverage is so unfair, and it does it be, makes you become kind of taciturn, right, in, as a journalist, because it's hard to get stories bought in this media climate, that, that it's difficult to want to stand up, even when somebody wants to maybe even, like, muscle up your story with a beefier headline which is really common. Yes, that's really common. The headline thing is such a challenge, as I'm sure you know. But uh, the, I, I think that's why we're, we're so uh, happy to have this kind of tight-lit community that's not just these young journalists, but again, these veteran, you know, award-winning reporters who've been laid off simply because that, the economics didn't work. So that has been probably the most empowering part of this community is you know, really meeting the pros and, and them, them having our backs. And, and that's been really special. Well, I want to ask you finally, um, what keeps you motivated? And uh, in, the, in the current political climate that we're in, there's so much to cover. But what, what really drives you right now to, to want to keep traveling to these places and keep telling these stories? Well, I, like many people, I'm sure feel very awake right now. Um, and I've always felt incredible. There's never been a lack of passion on the stories. I am totally enthralled and, you know, compelled to work day and night on, on the stories I cover that, you know, broken my heart, but also stolen my heart. So, so I, there's never a, a challenge to, to working on those stories. I think we're seeing, you know, a climate more hostile to the press. I, I think a lot of journalists are ready for it. I think we're ready to do our best work and, and that will speak for itself. So, so I think people are ready to come out swinging, but for journalists, that means doing the best reporting of our lives. That's right. The, the press is the enemy, according to Steve Bannon in a recent <laughs> New York Times interview. Is that right? Uh, crazy times. <laughs> Do you feel pressure to cover stories? Um, like the New York Times has made a real dent in VR, right? I think that's one of your publisher's yes. real missions there is to, is to get um, stories done in VR, especially international stories. So do you feel, have you experienced in that field? And how do you, how comfortable are you in that medium? Well, I am one of the many uh, VR evangelists. Uh, I was approached uh, by a production company uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, the production company is called 30 Ninjas, and they're just uh, really wonderful uh, filmmakers. And they had heard I had done a film in Gaza and that it was one of the most tragically cinematic places on earth. And the Gazans that were on this trip were telling the cameramen, like, tell Hollywood to come fill their Armageddon movies here. Like, we're never going to be able to rebuild. And, you know, that kind of gallows humor is, is very terrible, but also very much part of uh, the Gazan 
coping strategy. So for me, what was exciting when they introduced this new medium to me was that I became a war reporter because of the Vietnam War and what the work of war reporters and war photographers meant for our collective memory and the collective, you know, consciousness of war. And, and of course, those images of the reality of war didn't stop the war. But I do think that having the, that history down, it gave leaders pause. Nobody wants another Vietnam. You know, we hear that from politicians all the time. What was special about that war was it was the first war in history where we had broadcast media. So they call it the living room war because it's the first war broadcast into American living rooms. But with VR, it's the first time we've had the ability to transport Americans from their living rooms into these war zones. So I just think it's a really exciting new medium that I'm experimenting with. I don't have answers for anyone on that front. It's really challenging, but we're at least trying to work and figure out how we can really use this in an intentional and compelling way in the reporting that I do. Well, I think tragically cinematic is a headline uh, that, I, that I would like to see more of. I mean, that's, that really does sum it up. I want to thank you, uh, Anna, for taking the time to talk with us, and we'll keep following your work. Well, thank you so much, and really, you know, compelling questions, so thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcastone.com. I'm Mick Garris. When it comes to horror, you might know me as a writer, producer, and director. But I also love making people open up. I'm getting together with the most fascinating people in fright filmmaking. I'm going to pick their brains and find out what they know. But if they've got any secrets they're determined to keep, I have ways of making them talk. Download new episodes of Postmortem with Mick Garris every other Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.